News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you've ever watched any kind of a show about police, then you know about the police lineup. This is where they put a bunch of people together and they hope that a witness can identify the perpetrator of the crime. Problem is, it's not always reliable and it can lead to misidentification. And this is where artificial intelligence is now coming in. We're going to learn about that now with the help of Dr. Heather Flo, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Birmingham. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, good morning. How can artificial intelligence help in this area? Well, throughout the world, including in Canada, the police use static photographs to make identifications of criminal suspects. And the problem with static photographs is that, well, although cost-effective, they're not very good to jog people's memories, enabling them to identify the guilty and avoid identifying the innocent. So you need it to be like a moving photograph or like what's a better way to do it? Yeah, so picture this. You've witnessed a crime. You've seen the perpetrator's face. And now the police, they present you with a lineup to identify the perpetrator. But all you get are static mugshots of the individuals facing forward. This isn't how we see people in real life. We don't see blank expressions. We don't see mannequins, but we actually see movement. And that's really critical in helping people remember which individual in the lineup is the suspect. And what we do in many jurisdictions is that the police have libraries and libraries of static images that they use to compose lineups. What they want to do is they want to surround the police suspect with several individuals who look similar to create a test for the witness. But the problem is, is that they've created a test that actually is really difficult and doesn't work well with how people remember things. We need cues. We need to see a face, for instance, under the same lighting conditions from the same angle and the same emotional expression that the perpetrator had when committing the crime. And so by creating a a lineup procedure that allows the witnesses to interact with the photos and move them, see how the features work together, see how expressions change, lighting, how the face looks under different lighting conditions, can really boost eyewitness identification accuracy. Okay, so how do you do that then? Yeah, so what what happens is that here in the UK, which is where I'm based, we use videos. And what we've done is we've created a technology that takes those videos, which shows individuals moving from side to side so the witness can see the entirety of the face. We've created a technology that then renders those into a 3D rotatable object that is photorealistic and looks just like the individuals. We then show witnesses these faces but then they're able to use their mouse or use a touchscreen to then rotate the face and see how it looks from different angles. In a jurisdiction like Canada, where faces are drawn from driver's license photographs, their frontal pose, they're very flat, they're not dimensional. Um, some of the photos can be quite bad. Uh, yeah, <laughs> mine is. I was just thinking that while you were talking. I was like, I wouldn't want anybody to use mine. I for sure would look guilty. Yeah. It looks terrible. Well, you might, unbeknownst to you, to yourself, have been in a lineup because the police often draw on these these driver's license photos to compose fillers, you know, known innocence, to then test the witness's memory. So what we are trying to do is to work with those jurisdictions that are using those two-dimensional photographs and use AI to recreate the face in three dimensions. Once again, allowing witnesses to use angle as a cue, you know, be able to move the face and see what it looks like from different perspectives to jog their memories and enhance performance. And by this, I mean identify the guilty and not pick out the innocent. Okay, so how widely used is this right now or is it still growing? It's still growing. So most um, jurisdictions, they're using technology that hasn't changed in 100 years. And a lot of this is down to budget cuts and police departments. So for the last 10 years, we've been working really hard with the police to use their existing technology and adapt it in a way that's cost effective. So we could take video libraries and adapt those quite easily. And we're now field testing that with real life witnesses to then look at how performance improves. We've tested tens of thousands of people from all around the world under laboratory conditions. And we find that using these rotatable faces, these three-dimensional faces, significantly increases accuracy. I mean, we increase accuracy by as much as 40%. 
So it's a tremendous gain. We're, we feel really confident about our results. And so now what we're doing is we're testing it in actual police forces so that we can then gain some perspective from users like witnesses and the police and make the technology even better and, and more cost effective. Right. Dr. Flo, on the one hand, I'm very, very impressed by this work. But on the other, I'm a little horrified that they were still using these old police lineup methods that apparently were not very accurate. You should be. <laughs> when I did my um, dissertation research a very long time ago, everybody was debating the difference between simultaneous and sequential lineups. That is, whether people can see these 2D photographs all together at once or see them one at a time, which procedure is better. And to my mind, both procedures are pretty lousy. And we could do a lot better by tapping into the latest technological advances that now are becoming more cost effective to implement. And by drawing on theories about how memory works, you know, memory works when we're given a lot of cues. It's why a multiple choice test is a lot easier. There are things there to jog our memories and increase our ability to pick the correct answer rather than an incorrect one you know, compared to a test where I have to volunteer answers. So it's like we've been working really hard to make the task as impossible for the witness as we, as we can. And what we need to do instead is to work with memory, draw on memory theory, draw on the latest technological advancements that are becoming cheaper and to really restore public trust in lineups. Because um, as we know, there have been a number of stories about wrongful convictions based on eyewitness identifications that were an error. And we could do a lot better by the public. As I would imagine that police departments are pretty anxious to use this because it would make their job better too, wouldn't it? I, I believe so. It's, it's, the trouble is in some jurisdictions, it's mandated to use a certain kind of lineup procedure. Like in the UK, it's mandated that they use a video procedure. And people, as you know, they're resistant to change. But increasingly, we are getting more and more police departments interested in what we're doing, asking questions, asking for their forces to be able to trial the procedure. We, we find that really promising. And even if they don't use an interactive lineup, please, for goodness sakes, at least show your witness images of the suspect from different angles, you know, static photographs from the front, from the side, so that you can facilitate right. the witness's ability to remember. I'm going to think about this now because I watch a lot of police shows and I'm going to be thinking about this every single time. Dr. Flo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Heather Flo, professor of psychology at the University of Birmingham, talking about uh, her research into photo lineups. We know, right, police use these all the time to help identify suspects in a crime, but they're not very reliable or not as reliable as they could or should be, but they're developing the use of artificial intelligence to improve the reliability and accuracy of these lineups, which makes me think, yeah, I don't think they can do it fast enough at this point. This is Mornings with Simi. You know what that is right there? That is new Rolling Stones music off their album Hackney Diamonds. And guess what? You can hear it in person because the Rolling Stones are coming to town. BC Place, July the 5th. And we want to send you, we have some tickets to give away today. Very excited about this. You don't know how many people I know messaged me yesterday saying, can you help me get tickets? And I was like, no, I can't help you get tickets unless you try to call into the show and compete with everybody else. So yeah. Level playing field for everybody. Keep listening this morning for your chance to win. I can't even help Scott Schatz get tickets. Uh, yeah, and I have asked. Yeah, and I the answer the was tickets. a big fat no. I want the tickets. Yeah, yeah you're yeah, not getting yeah. them. No, I'm gonna. I'm. Would you rather get tickets to this show, The Stones, or Taylor Swift? I'm going to say the Rolling Stones. Yeah, Stones, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Like, uh, it just it's going to be such a huge concert. I'm so excited. And I don't know, have you heard the song of the Rolling Stones song with Lady Gaga? Yes. Off the new album? It's so fantastic. It Sweet is Sound good. of Heaven. Anyway, I digress. Uh, we're mo moving into the holiday season, Simi. And I know you online shop, right? I, I online browse. I prefer to online shop, like just take a look at what I want, sure. narrow it down, and then I like to go to the store and get it. But you do still order some things online, right? Occasionally. Yeah. Occasionally, yeah. And 
because you do exactly what most people do, Simi, you online browse, now the companies that are trying to sell you things know what you're browsing for and are targeting ads towards you. Have you noticed that? Oh, yes. I can't. I feel like things are listening to me all the time. Oh, you bet. And, and that's so why I, I look and I'm like, why is this ad for this coming up? I never searched for this. Oh, yeah. I said something. Uh, for sure. They're definitely listening. And uh, what they're doing, it's this really interesting thing. I just read a fantastic article in The Atlantic about how easy it's become to spend money on things that you don't need. And uh, it's all about the, the move to reduce what in the consumer industry they call friction. And friction is anything where that stops you from getting to the point of, of paying and checking out for that item. And I've definitely noticed this and fallen victim to it. Oh, they where- send me so much stuff. It drives me crazy that I will often put something just in my cart so I can come back to it later, but just to remind myself that's what I want. Right. And then I get bombarded with emails saying, did you forget something? Did you forget something? I'm like, yeah, no, I don't want to buy it right now. Exactly that. But they're also trying to make it easier for you to buy it. For example, something that you look for on Amazon and just put in your cart so you remember it for later, a company might sell that information to Instagram and then Instagram sells that information to an advertiser who then advertises that exact same product on a different site that you might be using, right? like Instagram. I don't know how often you use it, but I use it every day. And so you see an advertisement for something kind of pop up and what they're doing, this friction that they're trying to remove is they remember all of your shipping data, all of your credit card information. So the the main thing that is happening and then when they say that it's this like too easy to spend money on things you don't need, it's this buy now with one click, which Amazon obviously has had for a long time. Yes. And before even having a moment to consider it and to think, oh, I kind of like this. Maybe I'll go look at it in an actual store and see how it actually feels. They tell you things like, oh, don't worry about that. If you don't like it, you can just return it. Free returns, free shipping, super easy. And so it feels super easy for you to just go, oh, I'll just take this, buy, buy it, and then I'll worry about returning it later. But of course, we know way less people actually return it. Once you get it, you just think, eh, it's good enough, I'll keep it. And of course, it's just another way that companies hmm. are separating us from our hard-earned dollars. I feel like the one of the ways to fight back against that is, is you know, when they when your computer asks you, would you like me to remember this credit card information? Yes. Right across the bat, I say no. I say no every single time. I used to, but then I realized how convenient it is. Well, that's the problem though, Scott is like, I'm like, no, I'm going to make this harder. So I don't let in general websites keep my information. Totally. And the way that I said it, oh, I want this because it's so convenient. That's exactly what these companies are going for. And a really good way to think about it is if they're, if something is becoming more convenient, that's always for the seller's benefit. It's not, and nothing is becoming more convenient for our benefit. They're making it more convenient because they want you, they want it to be easy for us to buy these things. These things that, of course, we don't need. I know. Have you succumbed to any Black Friday sales? (sighs) I have a few things saved. I I have a few things in a cart. Because, Simi, I need things, and they're cheaper right now, so I should buy them, right? No. It depends on the things, Scott. It depends on the things, right? I'm like you. We have a lot, have a lot of things in my Amazon cart. I just put them in there. I put the, And if I come across them at the store, I'll buy them. But it's a reminder to myself that I, I'm looking for this particular item. But I haven't bought anything for this Black Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a few things. I haven't actually clicked purchase yet, but they're in my cart. And I now, now the companies are going to make it even easier. But I don't know if you've heard of this hack, Simi, where you put something in your cart and then you just leave it, like you say, and then they start saying to you, hey, did you remember that you have this thing in your cart? Do you remember? Some companies will actually email you a coupon and say, oh, are you still thinking about this? Get it before it's gone. Here's 15% off. That might make me do it. An extra 15%. Sure. I mean, that's a difference. That is a difference maker. But just remember, do you actually need that thing? Are you actually saving 15% or are you spending 85%? Okay, well, that's more math. And it's just all spending and you don't need to do it. And that's that's what I'm trying to do here is like they're making it way too easy for us to spend our money on things that we don't need, especially with Black Friday. Right. It's like, oh, it's on sale. You should buy it. But if it's not, it's not a deal if you don't actually need that thing in the first place. Sometimes though, it works out. A couple of years ago, we got a new vacuum on Black Friday that we didn't really need. But I got to tell you, it's the greatest thing. I love this vacuum. I couldn't love this vacuum more. And I still have the old vacuum too. Okay. So sometimes it works out. I guess there are the odd circumstances where it works out. Now you're making me think I need to do some <laughs> online shopping. Uh, Scott, thank you for that. Sure. 
This is Mornings with Simi. We have Rolling Stones tickets to give away coming up a little later on the show. Right now, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Hi, I'm uh, calling about the Rolling Stones tickets. <laughs> is there is there a seniors rate for anybody other than members of the band? If I could get them, <laughs> if I could get them for anybody, I would get them for you because I would love to see you at the Rolling Stones concert. It's very very exciting. It and, is exciting. Uh, I love the intro music. Uh, God, Charlie Watts was a fantastic drummer. Really was. I know, really was. That's going to be such a show. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> housing, though, right now, because yes, not yes. as exciting as the Rolling Stones, but boy, it sure does whip up the passions uh, because there's still a concern about these housing plans that the NDP government has announced. Yeah, I mean, the government's brought in five pieces of legislation that sweep away local government power over housing. Collectively, the implications are huge. And I really think out there that the public, uh, mayors, councillors, even opposition critics, pundits are all digesting the meaning of it all. But you're starting to see some well-researched pushback. And I want to draw attention to some work done by Andy Yan at Simon Fraser University, He's got a piece, a report out today, and there's a piece in The Sun by Katie DeRosa about it. And he says he's, he's taken a look at the government legislation that will change zoning around transit stations, so SkyTrain stations and major bus exchanges. The government's basically saying buildings of up to 20 stories will be allowed in those places. And you can see why uh, you want a lot of people living around transit stations and bus loops because it reduces the need for traffic. Get it. What Yan's done is he's looked at the actual places that will be covered by this. And then he's looked at who lives there now. And what he's found is about half of the places around the stations that will now have buildings of up to 20 stories He's found that about half of those places, people living there now are renters in purpose-built rental housing. And he says, this will have implications beyond the government intended. Here's the problem. You've got low-rise, old rental apartment buildings, and they'll be torn down for state-of-the-art, modern 20-story high-rises. And what you're going to get is a whole bunch of metro towns around transit stations, SkyTrain stations, bus loops, um, for better or for worse. And you remember the controversy for years over metro town was rental evictions. <clears throat> Old buildings, not marketable, uh, torn down, replaced with more expensive buildings, and the people that were evicted couldn't afford to live there. Right. They're concerned about it, but Burnaby has done this multiple times. They did it in Metrotown, well, they did it in Brentwood, they're doing it in Lowheed. Yes, and it's interesting, the mayor of Burnaby is echoing Yan's concern. So Mike Hurley of Burnaby, remember how he got elected? He got elected uh, in the backlash against Derek Corrigan, who rightly or wrongly was blamed for the wave of rent evictions in Burnaby. It uh, was blamed for going too far in tearing down old housing stock and not protecting the people that were evicted because of it. And that's how Hurley became mayor. So he's echoing these concerns. Um, Yan has a solution as well, and I, I really like it when academics who do this kind of research and well-documented uh, come out and say, you know, here's what the government should do. And what he's saying is the New Democrats should step in and provide protection for renters in these areas. Yes. Uh, make sure they're looked after. They're not just kicked out on the street and replace and have their building replaced with something they can't afford. And so far, and then questions come up. The housing minister, Catalong, has been asked the question, oh no, we're going to leave that up to local councils. So the government's running roughshod over local councils in terms of zoning. They won't even let them hold public hearings. And now they're saying, well, we're going to leave it to them to solve this problem of rent evictions because we don't really want to deal with that. Well, you know, I, I think this is a, a very effective pushback, uh, one that uh, ought to be the government itself should pay attention to it. Yan has also flagged another concern, which is the two areas in Vancouver that will be affected by these 20-story high-rises 
are Gastown and Chinatown. And he says this, without protections, is going to be a license to tear down heritage buildings into heritage communities in Vancouver. So, you know, I don't think anybody's saying don't try to increase housing density around transit stations and uh, rapid transit and bus stations, SkyTrain. But think about the implications. And Simi, I would say as a general criticism of what the government's done, this legislation is rushed. There are Mm -hmm. big holes in it that they haven't explained. And they're pushing back against legitimate criticism by saying, oh, you're all in the pocket of the developers. Well, some (laughs) of the developers love this legislation. It's not... It's not just, you know, developers that are out there complaining. Yan is a good example of a well-informed academic who's just said, hey, folks, you know, let's look at what this might mean that you may not even have intended. Yeah. And also they've done this before. They've tweaked things before. So I don't understand the opposition to them saying, you know what, you're right. Yes, we don't want to see this happen. So we'll put a few protections in there for that. What is the problem there? You know, Simi, they're in very, very aggressive political mode at the moment. The premier wants results before the next election. He's driving this out of the premier's office. Even the ministers in the government don't have an awful lot of say in some of this. And, you know, the the provincial bureaucracy, which has very little experience with zoning and, uh, you know, market housing, is suddenly taking control of all this. And not surprisingly, some local councils are going, all right, well, they've got a legislative majority and they're probably going to win the next election, so we better go along with this. Some municipalities are saying, hang on a minute, you know, before we rush into all this, let's just take a look at the implications, Mm -hmm. including, because mayors and councillors don't want their taxpayers to wake up some morning and discover that, you know, their rental building is being knocked down for 20 stories or uh, the the lot across the street is going to be replaced with, you know, a six unit multiplex because people don't follow this stuff all that closely and they rely on their local council to protect them. And of course, all of those protections are being stripped away by the new Democrats. And we are back talking with Vaughn Palmer this morning. And we'll talk about the big announcement uh, that we heard from the opposition leader, the BC United leader, Kevin Falcon, yesterday. Yeah, Kevin Falcon, the leader of BC United, and uh, he's got a bit of an ad campaign going on this as well, has rolled out a plan, his own climate action plan. So he wants to back off uh, a lot of the... uh, ambitious targets in clean BC because he says the impact on the provincial economy would be enormous. Uh, We've already heard from him saying that uh, he's going to tweak the carbon tax and he's going to go all in on LNG. So we've been thinking uh, the opposition is going to have to throw some ideas out there to contrast itself to the government, uh, election a year away. And we've now got a fairly dramatic announcement from BC United, and we'll see what the public response is. Um, but that's the the gist of what they announced yesterday. I think uh, Surrey Board of Trade, right? A yes, in Surrey. Yeah, yeah. So they're going to get rid of Clean BC. Now, what is Clean BC exactly? Well, Clean BC is a subject of a war of words, I think, right now. And the the key thing that the New Democrats this is the NDP government's climate action plan. And the key target is very ambitious. They want to reduce emissions in BC by 40% of where they were in 2007 by 2030. So seven years, well, six years now, they're going to reduce emissions. And the BC Business Council has put out a report saying that the impact of that reduction would be about $28 billion dollars on the provincial gross domestic product. So BC's GDP is about 300 million, so it's the equivalent of about 10% economic growth less over the the next six years. That's the report. And it's interesting, Simi, the government ignored that report when it first came out. It started to come out in dribs and drabs over the summer, and then they mocked it. They said, oh, BC Business Council doesn't understand our plan. It's misinformed. Uh, It's not helpful and all of that. Well, you know, uh, Business Council's chief economist, Ken Peacock, came back with a letter to the government this week, and he said, you know, 
you don't like this number of $28 billion impact on the economy. It's your number. He got the number from the government's own analysis of the economic implications of its climate action mm. plan. So the 28, this isn't some number picked out of the air by a climate denier. It's the government's own number. And I think I'd have to say so far what I've heard in the legislature from George Heyman, the environment minister who's handling the defense on this, is very dismissive, but he doesn't acknowledge, for starters, that it's his number. And he doesn't really, he claims there are ways to rectify this, but he doesn't really address that very effectively either because a lot of what the Business Council analysis is saying, almost all of it, is taken from the government's own analysis. So it's just repeating the government's figures back to it. And the New Democrats put this economic analysis out. It's their job to defend it. And instead, they're denying pretty much what's in it. Okay, and so what are they claiming? Will they claim that oh, it's gonna we'll get the growth from other parts of the economy? Well, yeah, you know, they, they say two things in the main. I mean, we start off with, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, that one's kind of demolished by the fact that the numbers are taken from the government's own report. So then the next line of defense is, well, you know, yeah, we're going to reduce activity in some areas, but we'll make it up elsewhere. Well, again, uh, the government's own economic analysis does not explain where the offsetting growth will come from to offset the reduction from all the things they're doing that are going to depress economic activity. So then we get to the ultimate line of defense. I mean, you hear this from climate action right across the board. If we don't do this, we're looking at a future of more floods and more wildfires and everything. Um, there's an inconvenient truth out there that the government doesn't want to acknowledge. Uh, British Columbia contributes to uh, 0.19% of global emissions. Those floods and those wildfires are going to happen, Simi, whether we shut down our entire provincial economy or not. Uh, the Business Council report is saying a wiser course is to prepare our infrastructure, our do preventive forestry, wildfire prevention, all of that should be done and by all means have some climate action, but to take uh, a course of action that will lead major impact on the economy when we need economic growth to pay for all the stuff we need to do is essentially the reply. Um, as I say, it's a, it's a powerful argument. It's debatable. It deserves to be taken seriously by the government, and they should, you know, come back if they've got a better analysis. But at the moment, all we're getting is, you're just a bunch of climate deniers, right? You don't want to, you know... Uh, save the world. And I think given the implications for the BC economy from the government's own economic analysis, mm -hmm. uh, the criticisms here should be taken seriously. Absolutely. Uh, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. That's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I have not heard that song in so long. And what's so funny about it is I thought, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? And then I looked over at Scott and Scott also had a smile on his face. This clearly violates my ACDC Led Zeppelin Ozzy Osbourne only play in music policy. What's the matter? You don't like the Hanson Brothers? <laughs> they had they had maybe one song and this is not it. Mbop, <laughs> uh, are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, I know, I know it was a big song. It's just not it for me. It was a huge song. Yeah. And see, everybody, we're all kind of laughing. It puts you in a bit of a good mood. Sure. It's that kind of earworm right? It's, it's novel. It's novel. It is novel. All right. Well, we are going to talk about the oil and gas industry here in Canada. Cause I think Scott, when people think about it and they think about the people who are employed there, they probably think men. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a really interesting thing kind of happening. And, um, this shouldn't come as a shock to any of us that it, it's actually a group of women that are advocating what I think is like a really evolved position when it comes to the oil and gas industry here in our country because for so long like at least at least for me as I've kind of learned about this it's been really easy to sort of view this uh, in a really polarized sense either you are pro oil and gas and pro 
energy or you are pro-environment. And dividing things up like that um, doesn't really help, as we've kind of learned. Like, our country is rich in some of these resources, and uh, it really helps the economy. And as many people are learning, uh, uh, the economy is tough right now. Affordability is tough. So this group called Canada Powered by Women, they've been advocating for a more sort of um, balanced approach that we can have both environmental consciousness and also uh, look at furthering the economy through some of these resources that we have. So I spoke with Sue Riddell Rose. She is the board chair for Canada Powered by Women. They just finished this survey of women about this exact thing. And I asked her to tell me a bit about it. Our organization's just finished. Uh, the survey results have been really fascinating. The uh, For sure, um, our, now our survey was targeted to engage women. So women who are tuned in, want to take in the news um, and, you know, understand the connection between the economy and energy. And and they are saying they really want a voice in this conversation on energy transformation because they're really connecting the dots that uh, how they are feeling um, affordability affect them is really very much linked to um, energy policies that we're making in this country. And and uh, they, they're seeing the connections and they want to talk about it. And, uh, um, you know, it's it's really been a pain point the last year or so is affordability uh, on all fronts has is, is become a challenge. Yeah, and one of the things that I found really interesting is that um, despite this sort of affordability crunch and, and, like you say, the challenge that it is, is that we're also still really focusing on prioritizing uh, sustainability. Yeah, for sure. So women, uh, from our survey, we we can say that uh, women are very much recognizing the affordability crunch, but they also care very deeply about the environment. They want an energy mix that includes um, basically all forms of energy, including uh, renewables, but also including fossil fuels. Um, they're starting to see that LNG uh, and some of the um, initiatives that Canada has off our West Coast particularly can really be an emissions reduction solution and also, um, you know, weigh into our, a positive influence on our economy. So they're looking for and solutions now, not... Uh, not either or. Yeah, and that's one of my big observations here is that for so long, um, we've sort of had this idea that it's like either uh, profitability or financial gain or um, environmental consciousness, when in reality, those two things are not... um, independent of each other, that it is possible for us to focus on sustainability and grow our economy and, you know, um, really support this sector here in our country, which is such a huge part of our economy. Yeah, we think about it as a triangle, energy security, which I, I would view as affordability and reliability, the economy and sustainability. And, um, you know, and, and really sustainability in, in this context these days is emissions reduction, but it's, it's um, everything we do, land, air, water, uh, and all of those things um, need to be balanced in sound energy policy, and that'll get the best outcomes. So it's really exciting that we have women that are interested in talking about this and learning and understanding and, and trying to um, direct the government uh, while they're thinking about policy decisions. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, really, uh, first of all, it's refreshing to sort of find this balanced view uh, that people are saying, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be black or white or, you know, one side or the other, like environment versus profit or whatever, but that, you know, these things are tied. And I love the way you sort of describe that as like a triangle. It just feels like a like a sort of more evolved and balanced understanding for us to like grow the country, both economically and environmentally. And surprise, surprise, that balanced view comes, of course, from women um, who are taking a bigger <laughs> role in that sector, right? That's right, exactly. And and that's really what our Canada Power by Women platform is all about, is encouraging uh, these deeper conversations so that we can get to um, balanced, balanced policy. Um, sometimes it's easy to see the direct connection um, between you know, for example, uh, policy, I would say, but uh, for example, carbon taxes and uh, affordability, that's a little bit easier to see the direct connection. And sure. you know, we've had a lot in the news lately about carbon taxes and uh, how it is impacting people's um, pocketbooks uh, really across the country. Um, a little harder to connect the dots on 
though, is something like an emissions cap. We're talking about an emissions cap, and you know, I, I think we would advocate for um, continuing to drive emissions intensity down, but allow production growth in our country. And, and I'll just connect the dots for you. You know, uh, production uh, an emissions cap would lead to production cap, which would lead to reduced exports, which means a weaker Canadian dollar, which means more expensive imported goods like food, and that's impacting everyone's pocketbook. So uh, we're talking about emissions cap today, but um, you know, uh, if we'd been talking about this 10 or 11 years ago when we were sort of facing the no more pipelines crisis, had, had we actually had pipelines off our coast um, over, over the last 10 or 11 years, we probably would have a stronger Canadian dollar, which would not than be weighing into our affordability crisis quite so heavily. That's Sue Riddell Rose. She's a board chair of Canada Powered by Women. And uh, two things I really love there, Simi. One, like that she's advocating uh, this balanced position, right? That we mm-hmm. can have both of these angles. And two, that she's doing it without all the vitriol that we get from men in these conversations. What I also loved hearing that and was so interesting is that getting more women involved in the oil and gas industry, you know, we should have been doing this a long time ago, totally. but it sounds like the way to do that then is just how it is pitched to women. Right. If you make it um, a priority about affordability or, or prioritizing their standard of living and here's exactly. how to get those things and to give you some independent like that, it, that's the way to pitch it to them. They just need to hear it slightly differently, which we know that about so many other things. Why didn't we think of this before? Totally. And I'm so glad that there is a group who are thinking of this because it feels like they're advocating like um, uh, a working, feasible, successful way forward. Right. So there's not just one group you need to tailor your message to. Uh, They talked about the benefits of LNG and they said 80% of the women that they pitched it to were more interested in talking about LNG if you framed it to them as having less harmful environmental impact. Right. Which it does. Seems like a no brainer. Totally. Why wouldn't they have marked, like you pushed that harder before? Uh, totally. Absolutely. So I, I find groups like this and these conversations very encouraging. I think think so too. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you for that, Scott. Sure thing. This is Mornings with Simi. It was okay for government to later impose a deadline, and it was okay even for that deadline to be imposed in a manner that was retroactive. What was not okay was that people weren't told. It's a basic principle of administrative fairness uh, that people receive notice of changes that are going to adversely affect them if they don't comply. Some sharp words there from BC's ombudsperson, Jay Chalk, uh, for the NDP government this week. A report that he put out said the Ministry of Finance failed to communicate changes to the BC emergency benefit for workers. As a result, people had to repay funds they had no idea that they were no longer eligible for. Now, his report says that this led to confusion and financial hardship for many beneficiaries. We're talking more than 10,000 people here. And said expecting people to check for changes themselves was impractical and unfair. So given all of that, we thought, well, we should hear from the Ministry of Finance on this. What are they going to do in response? Katrina Conroy is a Minister of Finance and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Simi. So what is your response to the Ombudsperson's report? Well, we appreciate his, the work that he did on the report, and, and but we also recognize that he did say that we developed a, uh, and delivered a much-needed benefit at a time of great uncertainty faster than it would have under, been delivered under normal conditions. And we have to remember that this was an emergency benefit for workers, and it was one of the first programs that was deployed to help people in the beginning of, of COVID. And uh, we got $1,000 in emergency support to over 640,000 people that were impacted by reduced hours and, and, and job loss. Um, one of the things that uh, that happened when you filed to, to get the, the emergency benefit is you had to check that you would file your 2019 uh, income tax return so that it could finally deter, like ensure that you were actually eligible for the, the grant. And uh, a number of people didn't do that. Um, we actually extended the deadline so that people could file the 2019 income tax and some people still didn't do that. So we did put messages out on, on the website, on in, in ads, and uh, some people were deemed ineligible, and, and uh, many of those people have uh, paid back the $1,000. 
Right, but the expectations that the ombudsperson said there was the onus was on people too much to check for this themselves. Is that too much to ask these people to pay that back, given that, as you said, it was hard to get this benefit out because it was so challenging at that time? Well, it's hard for people, too. It is hard for people, and we recognize that. And and to that end, you know, the people that that haven't uh, filed their 2019 income tax didn't do that, didn't uh, didn't get you know the, the didn't do what uh, they had agreed to do when they got the grant. Um, we put a, a, a repayment program in place, and and everybody that has gotten a letter explaining the process, and uh, there's even a one eight hundred number they can call if they if they need to do a repayment program. I mean, it's about it's about um, administrative fairness as well, but what we do understand that that this is tough for people. But at the same time, we need to in, ensure administrative fairness for all of British Columbians. So nothing is going to change. There will be no, you know, relaxation given to these people. Well, what we are doing is is we are helping people with the repayment program because we recognize that uh, that it could be tough for some people. So and interest was raised or was waived and and. Um, back from 2020 so um, it uh, we're, we're trying to help people with that because we do recognize it could be tough. So what changes moving forward then taking the criticism in mind from the ombudsperson mm-hmm. does this change any policies at the Ministry of Finance about how you communicate with people? Well we're always looking at, at working to improve our communication process so we're going to be looking at that um, we're going to be looking at our subscription service it, it provides uh, subscribers with notifications of updates and alerts and, and make sure that uh, those are, are up to date and 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 we recognize too Simi, actually that um, some people that didn't apply for the benefit about 8,000 of them were actually victims of identity theft so we are <laughs> making sure that people when they get the letter if they did not receive the benefit they need to reach out to us right away because we have had people reaching out and saying that we did not get this, they have proof they didn't get it, and they were actually victims of identity theft. And that happened during COVID. I mean, it was it was a tough time for people and there were some unscrupulous people uh, doing things that they should Okay, so given all of that then, are there measures mm-hmm. being put in place to make sure these kinds of mistakes don't happen again? Well, we are definitely looking at what we can do. I mean, we're working in collaboration with the federal government. It's a it's a program that's run through the, the CRA. Um, so, making sure that our both of our programs coordinate with each other, you know, and, and uh, yes, we're looking at what can we do to make sure that uh, this doesn't happen again. But I hope, Simi, that we are never in the position again where we have a pandemic like COVID, where people needed emergency benefits support in in such a way. Right. But in general, though, is there work that the ministry, any ministry can do to make sure they are communicating these kinds of things effectively to people, pandemic or no pandemic? Well, we're always looking at what we can do to make sure that uh, we are get people are getting the information they need in in a timely manner. And, and it's, it's, um, the federal or both Governments, are, I think, are, I believe are doing that, but we definitely are looking at, uh, you know, making sure that uh, we have efficiency and in, in when we're getting our information out there. Okay, so what do you say to the people then who are still worried about paying this money back? Well, I, I understand their concerns, and and I would encourage them to urge them to reach out to the one eight hundred number that was on the letter that they've received, and to talk to how they can do a repayment program. And, and not many people have already done that. Do they recognize it? And, and it's it's a process that's well underway. This has been in um, letters that went out in, in October, actually. Okay, so if people still have concerns, can they continue to communicate with the ministry about that? Yep, there's a 1-800 number and they can phone it. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Much appreciated. Appreciate that. That's Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance, talking about that emergency workers benefit that was issued here in BC during the pandemic. Now, yeah, that was a time of confusion. There was a rush to get money out the door to help people. There were a lot of pressures, uh, but could have been done better. That was the result of the ombudsperson, Jay Chalk's report yesterday, saying that the Ministry of Finance didn't properly deal with things that changed, criteria that changed retroactively and then communicating that to people who'd received the benefit who maybe were not eligible after all. 
I know a lot of people have had this problem, whether it was at the provincial level or the federal level, and it's been frustrating dealing with these bureaucracies to go, well, wait a minute, I did, I just, I did what was asked of me and I got the money. And now you're saying I didn't do enough to get, you know, to get this, or I didn't deserve to get this. And it just feels so unfair to people. If you've had this problem, if you're running into this, you know, you let me know, simi at cknw.com because, you know, there's a 1-800 number. But if you're still running into problems, 1-800 number is not going to help you a whole lot if you're getting stonewalled, right? So let me know, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Canadians are struggling with affordability. That was the focus of the fall fiscal update delivered in the House of Commons yesterday. And some of the main points include more money for housing, new targets to keep the size of the deficit down, and importantly here for BC, crackdown on short-term rentals by denying income tax deductions for rental properties. It's a big one. But let's break down more of what we heard now with Finance Minister Krista Freeland, who joins us. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I am delighted to be with you, Simi, and I'm just going to dive right in. Thank you so much for spotlighting that Airbnb measure. Um, We very much had BC in mind because we know it's a real challenge in BC. We know BC has taken action there, but it's hard to enforce. And so what we've done is really, you know, I would say federal government is joining hands with the province um, because, you know, there are, I think all of us know in our neighborhoods, places that are like revolving door Airbnbs that could be a place, you know, for your sister or your friend or your cousin to live in full time. And that's what we're going to help make happen. Okay. So how, how quickly is that going to take effect and what kind of accountability measures will be in place to track that? It's going to take effect right away. Um, and we're doing two things. The first is we are saying, and this is like a new idea because people have, you know, people were really racking their brain. The federal government doesn't really have jurisdiction in this space, but we wanted to help. And what we realized is people use the tax code, landlords do, to take deductions to make it economically viable to run an Airbnb. And what we're now saying is, if you're in a province like BC where you need to be registered, if your apartment is not registered as an Airbnb, if it is not officially okay, you are not allowed to claim deductions. And if you're not allowed to claim deductions, chances are it will no longer be economical for you to rent that out as an Airbnb. So that's going to be a very powerful enforcement mechanism. On top of that, we're also setting some money aside to support municipalities in their own local enforcement efforts. Hmm, okay. And can we also talk about the fiscal restraint measures that you announced yesterday? There are a, there are a lot of concerns about the spending of the federal government, the size of the deficit right now. What are you going to do about that? Um, you know, I absolutely understand those concerns. And from my perspective... We need an economic plan that is fiscally responsible because we need to be in a position where we can make sustained investments in the things Canadians need. We need to be able to invest in housing. We're doing a lot of that now. We're doing a lot of that in the fall economic update. We need to invest in our economic plan for the industrial transition, and we're doing a lot of that as well. But we can only do that from a fiscally responsible base. And that's why, you know, I'm really glad to have the chance to point out Canada has the lowest debt and the lowest deficit in the G7. We have a AAA credit rating, and the measures that we announced yesterday make it possible for us both to make the necessary investments and to maintain that fiscally responsible position. How quickly will that happen? It's happening right now. Our, our position right now, Canada's federal finances are in a responsible place. That AAA rating is today. But in terms and of that's like... that's not my judgment. That's not my judgment. That's the judgment of the ratings agencies who take a look at our finances and they say, is this sustainable or not? That's their judgment. 
But in terms of like making sure the deficit stays within a certain percentage of GDP, you want to put those measures in place, but do they not take effect until 2026? No, those measures are in place now. I mean, we have right now today the lowest deficit to GDP ratio in the entire G7, and we have had the swiftest fiscal consolidation. So, you know, we have cut our spending back the most quickly from the height of the pandemic when we had to spend a lot of money to keep Canada going. In all of the G7, we've gone from that extraordinary position back to what I would call normal and sustainable more quickly than any other G7 country. Are you concerned, though, about the impact of interest rates? I think everyone in Canada is concerned about the impact of interest rates. And what I'm the most concerned about right now is the impact that that is having on Canadians who have a mortgage. You know, people who worked hard, were able to afford to buy a home or a condo, but haven't paid their mortgage off yet. And I'm hearing from a lot of people who are concerned that as their mortgage comes up for renewal at this time of higher interest rates, are they going to be able to afford it? And so one other element that I'm glad to have the chance to highlight for you and for everyone who's listening um, is a new thing. I don't think it's ever been done before in Canada called the Canadian Mortgage Charter, which we published in the fall economic statement yesterday. And this is the kind of tailored relief that Canadians have the right to expect from their banks when they go to renew their mortgage. Um, Anyone who is worried about renewing their mortgage, please Google this. I think this will reassure you. And this outlines concrete things you can expect from your bank. To give you an example of the things in there, um, you can ask for a longer amortization period. And that can mean that you're going to be able to afford your Mm -hmm. mortgage when you renew. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about some of these measures. Okay, really, really good to talk to you too and looking forward to doing it again. That's Krista Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister and the Federal Minister of Finance talking about the fall fiscal update. So we had a chance to just touch on a few of the things there too. But honestly, when you talk about renewing your mortgage, there's really nothing in this day and time that would be reassuring about that process. It is a highly stressful situation, but just allow me for a second to explain a little bit more about what they announced yesterday. One of the things that happens is if you're renewing your mortgage, you know, if you have a minimum qualifying rate, it's called the stress test. Well, what they're proposing here is that if you're a homeowner with an insured mortgage that is up for renewal, you would not have to re-qualify at the minimum qualifying rate if you're switching lenders. Usually that is something that has to happen, meaning, you know, it's a much higher payment, even if you're not necessarily going to be paying that, you have to qualify at that rate. Uh, And it's just, it's a stressful, stressful situation. So essentially what it means is that you can then go to a different lender without having to make that stress test. So applicants are stress tested to see if they can make payments at rates of 5.25% or, you know, higher than that. That's an added stress for a lot of people, right? So if you're up for renewal, you don't have to pass a stress test to re-up with your existing lender. And now it turns out you can also not have to do that if you're looking to change to another federally regulated institution. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in that. And I know a lot of concerns for people. It will be interesting to see how that income tax deduction for the rental income will make a difference, whether that'll have an impact here in BC. Just one more thing to see if that shakes out and we'll have more on that. Try to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.